This is the Untold Civil War. We've got a great episode coming up where we will be discussing Civil War mail. But before we do that, I'll have you know that I was reading a recent letter from General Ulysses S. Grant to President Lincoln. And in it he wrote, I intend to harass Lee by way of the route marked by Civil War trails. These trails are made quite navigable and do an amazing job of identifying local landmarks. Okay, well, maybe he didn't write that letter, but if our sponsor Civil War Trails had been around, I'm sure he would have. Use Civil War Trails when planning your next Civil War road trip. And now, lick that stamp, seal that envelope, we're off to deliver some untold Civil War. This afternoon, I sit with Charles Epting of H.R. Harmer Fine Stamp Auctions to discuss an amazing piece of untold Civil War. So glad to have you on the show to share this piece of history. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for having me on. So before we started recording, you know, you were talking a little bit about this, but I'd like to get into it. How and when did H.R. Harmer Fine Stamp Auctions get its start? Sure. So the firm of H.R. Harmer can trace its history back uh, almost to the Civil War, to the 1870s. Uh, Henry Harmer, our, our company's namesake, was a stamp dealer in England uh, as a teenager, basically, in the in the 1870s. It started, you know, very small, uh, like a lot of people do, um, you know, sort of a, a schoolboy just dealing out of his home. And eventually this grew and grew and grew until 1918. He, uh, he founded the auction house that bears his name in England. So, you know, we're talking right around the end of World War One. He started holding public auctions of postage stamps and very quickly became one of the most respected, renowned names in the hobby. Fast forward a couple of decades, it's now the late 1930s. Nobody really knows what's going to happen in Great Britain. You know, you've got the, the Germans uh, sort of encroaching. Basically, as a contingency plan, he opens up a New York branch of the auction house as a way to get stamps out of the UK, uh, you know, should the the unspeakable, uh, unthinkable happen. So he opens up the New York branch in 1940, sends his son to to come run the company. And what really put us on the map, what really, you know, the first time we, the American branch of H.R. Harmer, got a lot of attention was in 1946. We were chosen to sell the stamp collection of the late President Franklin Roosevelt. So he's arguably the most famous stamp collector of all time. He's the reason most, you know, most kids in the 1930s and 40s were stamp collectors. You had him collecting and you had the King of England collecting the two most recognizable human beings on the face of the earth. And when he passed away, a lot of his personal effects ended up in his library. But he was very careful to say his stamp collection should be sold so that other collectors have a chance to enjoy this stuff. He didn't want it locked up in some institution for the rest of time. So we sold Franklin Roosevelt's collection in 1946. That really, uh, again, uh, put us on the front page of newspapers across the country. And since then, we've been one of the nation's leading uh, philatelic auction houses. Uh, we've sold some of the largest collections uh, ever assembled, you know, again, dating back to the 40s, 50s, 60s, up through the present day. Um, I myself joined the firm a little more than seven years ago, studied history at the University of Southern California, didn't know what I wanted to do with that. And through some uh, lucky breaks, ended up, uh, you know, with a full time job at H.R. Harmer and uh, been a huge part of my life ever since. The 160th anniversary of Gettysburg is coming up. It's time to dust off those brogans and get your kit ready for all your last minute needs. Check out the badge maker. He is your best source for Civil War Corps badges canteen covers, ID discs, pipes, watch fobs, and much more. Link in the show notes. As a fellow history major, you know, I got my history degree at St. John's University. You know, one of the things that always came up was, oh, you're getting a history degree. Well, what do you want to do? Just teach? And really, like talking to you now, there's so many different things you can actually do with a history degree, this being one of them. So I think it's great for people to hear. 
Absolutely. My, my other degree was in geology, which there's a very you know uh, cut and dry career path. You go work in mining or the oil industry or something like that. And I think a lot of people expected me to use that geology degree. They didn't expect me to lean into the history one so much. Yeah, I, I, I was very fortunate. You know, um, I, I can get into why stamp collecting is, is so important, you know, to historians. But uh, yeah, for me, it was a it was a way to, you know, continue my historical studies and uh, do it in a way that, uh, you know, lets me travel and meet all sorts of new people. It is said that when Grant walked into them clean house, Lee was already there. Grant apologized for being late. Lee responded, no worries, General. I had the most recent edition of Military Images magazine to keep me entertained. Be like Lee and stay entertained. Subscribe to Military Images magazine. Link in the show notes. Well, I'd like to get into that because I also collect Civil War items. Um, I know many people who do collect Civil War relics, whether it's swords, pieces of uniform, badges, and even photography. Our two worlds are kind of coming together here. Uh, you come from the stamp side. What is it about stamps? Why are people collecting them? What is the, the draw? And if I'm a Civil War collector, why should I actually start looking at stamps? Maybe, maybe there's something to add to my collection there. So, you know, if you ask a hundred stamp collectors why they collect, you'll get a hundred very different reasons. I mean, a lot of people come at it uh, from an artistic standpoint. You know, the designs of the stamps, the engraving. Um, you know, a lot of people uh, view them as as commercial investments. They want, you know, it's like uh, you know, like collecting gold or silver or something like that. I think uh, there's been a trend in the hobby over the last couple of decades. Something I'm very happy has has been going on, where there's more of a, a push to contextualize stamps and to not just figure out, you know, if they're rare or uh, if they're valuable, but rather why they were created, how they were used, how they fit into the framework of American and world history. My focus is overwhelmingly uh, American stamps and envelopes. That's going to be my focus. But, you know, this applies to every corner of the globe. And I think what makes it really interesting, you know, I I think it used to be fair to say that we take mail for granted, but even our generation uh, can't even say they take mail for granted because it's not, you know, not really a going concern anymore. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, all of my bills are auto pay online. And if I need anything done, it's it's all digital. I don't think we realize, I don't think it's possible for us to wrap our heads around how critical the development of the post office was. And you can trace the post office in Britain back to the 1600s, but really when it blossomed, when it, it took its modern form was in the late 1830s, early 1840s. I promise this will all tie back to the Civil War in a second, but there was a, a man, a social reformer named Roland Hill in the UK. And he realized that mail was essentially confined to the upper classes. This is something that members of parliament or you know maybe prominent lawyers were taking part in, but the average person was not sending mail. Postal rates throughout the United Kingdom were very complicated, very expensive. And he had this radical idea, which was what if every letter sent within the United Kingdom cost a penny, whether it was going across London, whether it was going from Aberdeen to, to Bath, wherever it was going within the UK, one penny postage. And the post office will make money on some transactions. They'll lose money on other transactions. But this is a way to sort of democratize the mail. The mail is not something that should be confined to the upper classes. It is a human right. And it was part of this social push towards cheap and reliable mail within the United Kingdom, within America, across the Atlantic Ocean. All of a sudden, your your everyday person is able to send mail. Your everyday person uh, able to communicate with different corners of their country, different corners of the globe. And this comes to America very quickly. By 1847, the United States government is issuing postage stamps. And people were initially very reluctant to start using postage stamps. They were used to having to go to the post office. You would 
literally pay in cash to mail your letter and the post office would mark the letter as having been paid. Or I think this is even crazier to think about. You could send your mail collect so that whoever received it had to pay for it. And a lot of businesses, uh, it was a sign of respect to not pay for mail because you were telling the recipient, I think you're wealthy enough to pay for your own mail. So there are all these social customs, everything going on. In the years right before the Civil War, the government realizes, A, we cannot collect cash for letters anymore. We need postage stamps. It's easier for accounting purposes. It's more convenient for everyone. Uh, that's the first thing. Second thing they realize is we cannot allow people to send mail collect anymore. We're just losing too much money. So in the mid to late 1850s, there's this huge push to make postage stamps compulsory. There's this push to you know, ensure that every American is using postage stamps. And then all of a sudden, late 1850s, 1860, uh, you know, the country starts evolving very rapidly and things start getting worse. A against this backdrop of people having just learned to use postage stamps. So I think when you look at stamp collecting in relation to the Civil War in particular, it's this fascinating convergence where it's the proliferation, the widespread use of the postage stamp at a time when resources have never been more finite when transportation has never been less reliable, when you've got, you know, this, this dramatic backdrop and people are just trying to send their mail as they've been conditioned to by the government. So I, I think that's sort of the, the context of why, and, and we have a term called postal history, uh, which sounds sort of straightforward. A lot of stamp collectors get sort of pedantic about it. Postal history is basically the study of how much a letter cost how it traveled from point A to point B, sort of the machinations and story behind how mail was carried. So, you know, whereas a lot of people going back 100, 150 years were collecting stamps off of their original envelopes, they'd actually take the envelope, soak it in water, wait for the stamp to come off, and then add that to their stamp album. Nowadays, there's a lot more focus placed on the context. You want things on their original letter. You want to know who sent it, where they were sending it to, what it contained. And again, that's sort of, you know, it's this, this great convergence of the evolution of the postage stamp and the outbreak of the Civil War leads to one of the most fascinating eras in the history of the American post office. I love it. And I also love this idea of, you know, the groupings. You know, I, I've seen that in other hobby collecting areas as well. Instead of just saying, well, you know, I, I don't want the letters. I just want the sword. And you end up dividing this entire grouping and you lose the story. I think that's important to keeping things together. Absolutely. It's a shame that so many letters were, you know, when, when after the Civil War in particular, stamp dealers would go throughout the South looking for family correspondences. And a lot of times the family would keep the letters and sell the envelopes with the stamps on them. So a lot of things were divorced. But luckily today, whenever something is still with its original envelope, with its original contents, people are very careful to preserve that and keep that together. So uh, I, I think it's been a wonderful trend in the hobby. It allows us to sort of tell these macro historical stories. I, I think this is my favorite thing about stamp collecting. This is how I sort of approach it every day. The Civil War is so often told through the battles, through the generals, through the movement of troops and blockades along the coast. You've got these really big picture stories that, that, are, that are very dramatic, very cinematic. And then you've got the mail, which is as mundane and commonplace and personal as can be. You're not looking at the movement of thousands of troops across the South. You're looking at one day in one person's life. You're looking at this snapshot of a single human being again, set against this backdrop of the entire civil war. And I think that dichotomy is what makes it so interesting to me. Like I, I, I've, you know, as a child, I went to Gettysburg. I went to Antietam. You love going to these places because it is so sweeping and grandiose. And, and these letters are in many cases, the exact opposite. You're reading about, you know, what someone ate for dinner. And I think that sort of juxtaposition is just really, really incredible. 1215 Sunday is a documentary where the team behind the project interviewed John Stone Jenkins, 
and recreated his World War II experiences visually so you can watch his story unfold while he himself narrates it. This is a unique style of storytelling, and you can watch this program and more like it on History Fix, available at the link in the show notes. These are the primary sources that we need to use and preserve to better understand the Civil War as a whole. And some of these letters are documenting some really, really fascinating parts of the Civil War, which is what I kind of want to get into because something has come across your table that when I got your emails, I think I had to like sit back for a second and sit down because this is really amazing. Uh, can we talk about this letter that has come across your desk? How did you guys find it? And, you know, how how, how does this happen exactly? Is Was this an, an attic or a, a barnyard find? So it, it's actually neither of those. It's, it's even stranger. It came to us by way of Germany. So a little bit of context. There is a uh, there, there was a stamp collector by the name of Ari von Haub. He's a, he, he passed away in 2018, uh, but he was a German grocery store magnate, basically. The family was in the, the, the trade business for, for centuries. And he, as a young man in the 1950s, was sent to Southern California to basically stock shelves at an A&P supermarket. Even though he was going to inherit this fortune, his family said, you're going to start at the bottom and, and work your way up. So he's, he's stocking shelves in Southern California and gets bitten by the American history bug. But not just any American history, the really, really romantic romantic, dramatic aspects of it. So California Gold Rush, Pony Express, Civil War, these, these, you know, these, these marquee uh, historical events that we all love learning about in school. And, uh, you know, he went back to Germany, uh, you know, ended up going to college, inherited the, the, the family company. And he decided he was going to become arguably the greatest stamp collector on the planet. He focused his collection on Germany, on Switzerland, on Austria, Lombardy, Venetia, but also the United States. And I think it's interesting. I think a lot of times, it, uh, it takes an outsider to appreciate our own history better than we do. So here's this German billionaire who decides he's going to put together the best collection in the world of American postal history. You're in New York as well. I don't go to the Statue of Liberty, the Empire State Building, unless someone is visiting from out of town. And I think that, you know, I, I think that he was similar in that, you know, a lot of Americans maybe take their own postal history for granted. He he had a fresh set of eyes. He was hungry for this stuff. And he spent decades putting together one of one of the all-time great stamp collections, which we've been uh, you know, fortunate enough to sell over the last four years. We've got about another year's left of sales, you know, uh, many, many uh millions, tens of millions of dollars worth of worth of stamps being sold by ourselves and our, our sister companies in Europe. So it, th this item comes from his collection. So it's been in a, a bank vault in Germany for decades, which is the last place you would expect something like this to end up. I'm going to describe the, the envelope in a second, but just a bit of context. Uh, I take Metro North every day uh, up, up to Dutchess County. So I do a lot of my work on the train. I spend a lot of time on Metro North and I bring things with me onto the train. Uh, so I always feel a bit anachronistic. I'll be sitting there reading you know, a Civil War soldier's letter but while sitting, you know, everyone else is on their iPads and everything. And I've got this 1860s piece of paper in front of me. So a couple of months ago, I'm, I'm working on our, our upcoming sale. And it's a it's a fairly unassuming looking letter. It's addressed to East 16th Street in New York City. It is sent from Old Point Comfort, Virginia. It is mailed June 22nd, 1864. So fairly late into the war. It's got a basic three cent United States stamp on it. So this is an instance where the stamp itself is irrelevant, negligible. This is a stamp that you can go buy them for, you know, pennies. So, you know, on the surface, it's just a letter sent from Virginia to New York City late in the Civil War. You know, it, it's cool. 
uh, but there's nothing necessarily, uh, you know, significant or important about it. And that was when I pulled out the letter that was inside. And that was what really, again, I'm sitting there, I think I was near like White Plains or, you know, it was somewhere in, in suburban New York City, reading this letter and my jaw just dropped. And I could not believe what I was holding in my hands because it contained one of the most significant and interesting letters I've ever come across. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of mail we read that is, that, that catches your attention. This one, uh, you know, sort of blew everything else out of the water. Who wrote this letter? Do we know or sure. who addressed the letter? We do. We do. So this letter was written by a Samuel A. Duncan he was a, uh, Samuel Augustus Duncan was a Dartmouth graduate born in New Hampshire. He uh, had this very interesting life. After the Civil War, he became the assistant commissioner of patents for the U.S. government. Uh, he was originally with the 14th Regiment of New Hampshire Volunteers, but when he really uh, sort of made a name for himself is when he was commanding the 4th United States Colored Infantry Regiment, who were a, a very storied, very successful uh, an African-American uh, unit during the Civil War. So uh, Samuel Augustus Duncan is the uh, the gentleman's name who wrote this. It was written from the headquarters of the 2nd Brigade, Hanks's division on June 20th, 1864. June 20th is two days after the battle. Petersburg is over. So this is a, a very critical juncture uh, in the war. And uh, it's written to a Mr. J. Graham Gardner in New York City, who was presumably a friend of his, who he was in touch with. I have yet to establish a, a direct uh, connection between the two of them, but this is obviously a very uh, open, personal letter that he's writing. So uh, I'm just going to read an excerpt of it. The other thing I do want to address is the language in the letter is certainly indicative of the 1860s. It is not indicative of, of 2023, but I think out of fairness to, uh, to Duncan and, and you know, uh, out of keeping the integrity of his words, I'm going to read it uh, verbatim. You know, it, it contains these sentences that, that again, I'll, I'll sort of work my way through and I, you'll, you'll see where it's going and uh, it just gets more and more incredible. So it opens up, my dear Mr. Gardner, your note of the 13th last is just received. Your several communications of last month uh, save those of the 3rd and 9th failed to reach me. So Already, you know, you're hearing about the difficulties in getting mail from New York City to Virginia at this time. Only two letters sent over the course of a month were able to reach him. Regret exceedingly that final action in your case has been so long delayed. So referring to a court case, presumably, it has been due undoubtedly to the pressing business of the campaign. The day before we started for our attack on Petersburg, Lieutenant Colonel Rogers, uh, at my suggestion, wrote to department headquarters calling attention to the fact of your appointment and requesting a pass for you to join the regiment. So he's trying to get him uh, to Virginia from New York City. Uh, it goes on to deal with a lot of administrative business. Here's the part that, that I think really gets interesting. You need have no fear that we enter the rebel capital immediately, underlined. There will be a chance for you yet, I trust. There will need be considerable delay in capturing Richmond, but Grant has finally struck the true base and will push the thing with a will. The whole army is full of confidence. The Negro troops did much to open the way for him on the 15th. The question is now settled. The Negro will fight, again, underlined. They did nobly. You have learned the whole story from the papers ere this, and the papers will not overstate the case. Privately, I am glad to state that my brigade of four regiments did the chief work. In the last assault, there was but one colored regiment beside. I would pit my command against any equal command in the army. The Army of the Potomac, seeing the works we carried, have yielded all their prejudices against colored troops. This was our greatest triumph of the day. Join us as soon as you can. Remembrances to Mrs. Chamberlain, to Alex, and all your friends. What do you even say? Again, it's one thing to read newspapers. It's one thing to read public speeches. Here's a letter talking about how the efforts 
of his men, of his African-American troops, uh, you know, essentially paving the groundwork for Grant's men to come in and, and uh, you know, proceed on their march to Richmond. Their efforts won over the prejudices of Grant's men. Their efforts uh, sort of eliminated any sort of hostility or question as to their loyalty. He's writing this two days after the battle is over, and it's entering the mails two days after that. We're, we're within a week of the Battle of Petersburg. And Duncan is sharing these incredible insights into what it was like. You know, when he says, I would pit my command against any equal command in the army, they've yielded their prejudices. This was our greatest triumph of the day. Again, it's one thing to, to read the speeches. It's one thing to look at maps of the battlefields. It's another to hold this letter in your hand and think about what was going through his mind, what was coursing through his veins in these pivotal days of the war. I mean, if that doesn't give you chills, I don't know I, I what will. I've you know, read one this of those like a dozen times. I got goosebumps reading it aloud to you. It's it's as good as it gets. It, it makes the, the entire conflict of the war, it distills it all into a couple of days in one man's life, into one letter. Again, you can just put yourself there. You can picture him in a tent writing this, you know, by lamplight, probably. He can taste victory. We're less than a year from Appomattox at this point. And I, I think that that's really just what, what brings these things to life. The stamp itself, the postmark, all of this is irrelevant compared to the historical weight, the gravity of what is being conveyed. We must always support our veterans but sometimes it's tough to figure out just how to do that. Polar, Path of Least Resistance, is doing it right by organizing retreats for veterans that bring veterans together, allow them to network, and develop strong support groups. Use the link in the show notes to learn more. This is a letter that was recognized for its contents, not just today, but when our German friend here actually collected it back then. This is how significant this was even back then. Exactly. He he was always looking for the stories. He was true. He was collecting things of great rarity, of great value. But for him, a, a good story, a human interest story was, was always, um, uh, you know, first and foremost. And I think this, you know, really ranks amongst the most incredible letters I've ever seen from the Civil War. Uh, you know, he's again, this firsthand account of uh, the, the, the union between the, uh, you know, the white and black troops, I think is just absolutely remarkable. And, and yeah, he certainly appreciated it. The time he was buying it, you know, he was probably outbidding. Uh, I don't know exactly where he bought this at auction, but he was almost certainly up against other American collectors. Power to him and his, his uh, you know, deep pocketbook to be able to bring this to Germany, appreciate it for a couple of decades. And then again, before his passing, it was it was his intention that this stuff you know, make it back out onto the market and, and and find a new home, find a new steward. I think that's another great part of this hobby is we we own this stuff, you know, for our lifetime. And then it's uh, someone else's turn to, to take care of it. When Harper's Weekly needed graphics done for their newspaper, they turned to graphic design artist Ty from 1863 Designs. Okay, Ty isn't that old, but his designs are timeless. Link in the show notes going to have some people who are listening to this who are probably going to want to know, okay, how can I even bid on this or actually even just observe the the auction? We were talking a little bit about this beforehand, how I picture an auction is a room full of people and the hammer and everything. Things have, have changed a little bit. People can access the auction online, correct? Correct. So yeah, I, I, I still have that uh, image in my mind. We have framed pictures in the office of auction rooms in the 50s and 60s. You've got, you know, 100 people all dressed to the nines. Um, that was changing already. The internet has made it much easier to bid from the comfort of your own home. We can post, you know, high resolution scans of everything online, which, you know, it's probably even better to look at the scans than it is to look at the item in person. So 
sometimes uh, to see more details. So we still do hold auctions in person. We're in Midtown Manhattan and Rockefeller Center. Uh, our auctions are, uh, you know, uh, open to bidders. Uh, you know, if, if somebody's ever interested in attending, uh, you have to register in advance. Just let us know you're coming. But uh, I would say 95 plus percent of our business is now done over the telephones and over the internet. Uh, we stream the audio live uh, of the auction. So I actually call the sales myself. I'm going to spend the next couple of days, you know, talking uh, nonstop for hours upon hours. We broadcast the audio. We have a picture of the lot, uh, you know, up on the screen so that you can you can follow along real easily. This sale is going to be held on Wednesday, June 21st, beginning at 2 p.m. Eastern. You can follow along on our website. It's hrharmer.com. That's hr. H-A-R-M as in Mary, E-R.com. Whether you just want to follow along or if you want to bid, there's lots of other great Civil War related items in this collection and other collections we've got coming up over the course of the uh, the next year. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a lot of fun to, to see where these things go because sometimes a couple of people uh, lock eyes either on the floor or metaphorically over the internet. And uh, some of these things go for just remarkable prices. So I think it's a lot of fun to to be able to follow along. Well, for sure, I would like to put uh, that link in the show notes so people can click and access that. Quick question, is there a specific lot number? Do we know? Yeah, so this is lot number 94. Lot number 94, uh, we've begun with lot one in this sale. So lot one at, at two o'clock, and this will presumably come up a couple of hours into the sale. Perfect. I'll definitely uh, want to notate that. Wonderful. Also, uh, are there any other things on uh, coming up in this auction that are Civil War related that you can mention briefly? Yeah, so there, there's one other thing I would I would um, love to have a further discussion with you about this at some point, because I think it's one of the most interesting facets of how the Civil War and, and uh, stamp collecting uh, sort of collide. I was saying that at the time the Civil War broke out, people were just starting to get used to using postage stamps. They were compulsory. They were widespread. They were in essentially every household. The southern states break away, and all of a sudden, the, the North needs to demonetize all postage stamps, because the fear was that if stamps retained their value, the stamps in the southern states could be sold, you know, through France, uh, through Europe, they could make their way and, and, and they were essentially source of income for the southern states, they were, you know, legal tender. So in the north, they immediately start printing new postage stamps. And you had a window of about eight days to take your old stamps to the post office, trade them in for new stamps. So that's what's going on in the north is they have to basically cycle out every postage stamp in circulation. What's interesting, every postage stamp the United States has produced since 1861 is still valid for postage. It's still legal tender. Everything before 1861 is, it certainly has a lot of value to collectors, but has no value in the eyes of the post office. What was going on in the South is even more fascinating, I think, because you don't have stamps. There's no, uh, you know, they, they very quickly set up a Confederate post office, but it was not the most pressing concern to create postage stamps. You're trying to get weapons and ammunition and uniforms and whatnot. Postage stamps were probably pretty low on the list of, of priorities uh, for the fledgling government in Richmond. So you've got this situation where people have come to expect postage stamps, and yet the government couldn't supply them with postage stamps. So what happened at about 120, 130 post offices across the South, at least, is the postmasters endeavored to make their own postage stamps, which had no validity in the eyes of Richmond. They had no validity at the post office down the street. They were only valid in their respective post office. And from certain post offices like New Orleans or Memphis, bigger post offices, these stamps are quite common. But from a lot of small post offices, A, the production value was very low. 
uh, you're dealing with, you know, maybe they took a little slip of paper and just put a hand stamp onto it. Whatever, whatever they were using to cancel the mail, that became a de facto provisional stamp. Uh, whereas in the larger offices, they're contracting newspapers or printers to make their own postage stamps. So you've got this, it, it, it's almost folk art in a way to see how the postmasters in the South over the course of 61, by the end of 61, early 62, you know, the Confederate government is issuing their own postage stamps for use across the South. So you've got this couple of month window where postmasters are scrambling just to make their customers happy. You know, for years, they've been saying, you've got to use stamps, you've got to use stamps. War breaks out, there's no stamps, what do you do? So there's a large number of these provisional postage stamps in the upcoming sale, and we've got more coming up uh, in a sale in December. I think this aspect of, of postal history, the Civil War, is just amazing because it's a combination of, again, there's a, a folk art component to some of these stamps where they're very beautiful designs uh, carved out of woodblock or made out of printer's type. There's this um, real uh, innovative attitude, this sort of make-do attitude that the postmasters had to try and keep the people happy. And again, it really speaks to, uh, you know, you're a postmaster in a small town in the South. You know, what, what's going on in your head? You know, a lot of postmasters stayed on from the, you know, the federal administration before the Civil War. So they'd been supplied with stamps and supplies from the U.S. government. Now, all of a sudden, they're trying to make do with this ramshackle government that's organizing itself in real time. So I think that's it. Again, I would love to have a further discussion with you at some point, maybe over a cup of coffee, uh, about these provisional stamps of the of the Confederacy, because uh, they're a great sort of um, footnote to the Civil War, certainly not on the scale of, again, uh, you know, uh, railroads or movement of troops or battles, but I think a, a wonderful piece of the equation and something that deserves to be uh, looked at more by historians outside of the stamp collecting world. Absolutely. We'll definitely have to have you back on to discuss that topic because that is some untold civil war. Some of these you said are coming up for auction too as well, right? Exactly. So so coming up, I've got the catalog next to me. Coming up, uh, we've got uh, Greenville, Alabama, Gonzales, Texas, Franklin, North Carolina. Uh, again, s small towns all the way up to Macon, Georgia and Nashville and Mobile. So uh, these really you know, run the gamut from the, the most primitive to some of the most beautiful stamps ever produced on American soil, I think. So I, I highly recommend that anyone interested, we've got all of our uh, back catalogs online as well. Uh, so we've sold a lot of these over the last four years or so. Uh, even if a sale has passed, I, I highly encourage people to flip through and take a look at these things. One last thing I'll mention, uh, there was also this fad uh, going on during the Civil War. People would buy envelopes with printed designs uh, supporting their, I'm sure you've come across some of these. So in the North, uh, these were usually very ornate, beautiful designs, uh, you know, with, with Lady Liberty holding a flag or with different regiments, different, uh, you know, different battle scenes depicted. In the South, they're typically much more um, primitive in their design. Again, the printing methods, uh, paper was at such a premium, um, but there's a great one coming up in our, in our sale on Wednesday. The last thing I'll mention, then I'll, I'll stop myself from rambling too much, but uh, there's a, a very famous design called the Hanging Lincoln, which is uh, Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln being strung up on a tree by his feet. Basically, I, th I think he's called Abe the Destroyer. He, there is so much reverence for Abraham Lincoln in the North at this point. So many of these patriotic envelopes depict him as, as you know, this, this great savior. Uh, in the South, they are depicting him in the most brutal 
and uh, demeaning and demoralizing way possible. And the, the way I sort of look at these patriotic envelopes nowadays, people maybe post political Facebook statuses or tweet political things. If you were in the 1860s, your way of supporting the cause, your way of supporting the union or supporting the Confederacy was on your mail. This was a very vocal, very public way of expressing your viewpoint. So there's a lot of those coming up in the next sale as well. I highly recommend looking at those because, uh, again, some of them are, are just incredible in how uh, violent and aggressive they are. You know, again, I think um, a lot of our, our uh, you know, hindsight's 2020 on the Civil War, and we tend to think of things in patriotic and noble terms. And there was a lot of real vitriol uh, being thrown both ways. So I think those are a lot of fun to look at as well. Oh, yeah. You know, I guess we have like keyboard warriors. I guess we have like postal warriors. Exactly. Envelope warriors. Exactly. <laughs> Envelope and, warriors. And, and, and it was a whole cottage industry where a lot of the people producing these things were just trying to make a quick buck. A lot of them were even coin dealers who thought we can sell these envelopes to stamp collectors. You know, a lot of the um, maybe cynicism that's entered the collectibles marketplace today already existed by 1862. So I think that's another great uh, untold story is uh, in how these envelopes came to be and who was using them. So uh, again, a lot of great Civil War history. I, I think of everything uh, Mr. Ari von Haub collected, his Civil War material is certainly uh, amongst the strongest. And I highly recommend, again, going through this catalog, going through back catalogs, just to see uh, some of the incredible stories he was able to to gather together. Two of my favorite envelopes that I've seen is one of Peter Hart raising the flag over Fort Sumter. I don't know if you know that story, but that was one of my favorite. And another one shows Jeff Davis taking Washington, but yes. it shows him as a photographer. Yep. You know, and that's like, I guess they're saying that's the only way he'll take Washington. Exactly. Right? Yeah, there, there, there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, Jeff Davis trying to, you know, take Washington. He's a fox with Washington in a bag slung over it. All these. Uh, the other thing I love about a lot of them is I'm sure they were hilarious at the time, but there are certain ones that try as I might, you cannot figure out the context. You cannot figure out what the joke is. Again, I'm sure that if somebody received this in the mail, it would have made their day. Um, but, but you know, it, it's sort of like how uh, different memes and things cycle through so quickly today. Um, you know, I, you know uh, Beauregard depicted as an elephant because he was cowardly and, and things like this that, again, in the moment, I'm sure they were great, hard hitting uh, political satire. Uh, but today you read it and you just are completely lost as to what they're trying to say most of the time. Well, we're definitely going to have you back on to discuss these things because I love it. Um, so we're definitely going to do that uh, if, if that's possible. I, I, I would love that. Again, I, I I come at this with a with a historian's eye. I feel so fortunate that this stuff comes across my desk, and I would love to further these discussions. This seems like it could be a uh, again just the the start of a, a wonderful series of conversations. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And as I said, I'm going to put a link in the show notes so everyone can access this auction. And I'll say it again: June 21st, right? That is correct. 2 p.m. Eastern, uh, hrharmer.com. So no, thank you for putting a link. Thank you for having me on. This was one of the most fun conversations I've had in a very long time. I, I truly appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening while you sat and admired your own stamp collection, awaiting eagerly for the auction, beating back the rebel host at Culp's Hill, routing the Yankee invader at Chancellorsville, or whenever you listen to podcasts. If you missed the auction, Keep in mind that our sponsor, the Excelsior Brigade, has plenty of Civil War letters for you to purchase. Just visit their website. The link will be in the show notes. Now, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you check us out on YouTube to get a look at our video content. And finally, I hope you tune in for the next one. Thank you.